0: You need to say everything impressive about yourself as quickly as you possibly can and then you need to move on to what you're building because like we are we're investing in you but we're also investing in what you're building
1: katie shea is the founder and general partner of divergent capital a 30 million dollar early stage venture fund she began her journey as an entrepreneurista in her dorm room where she co-founded her first company City Slips which she grew to millions of dollars in revenue. Before becoming a VC, Katie ran a growth consultancy working with early stage tech companies and she's been featured in the New York Times, Forbes and Entrepreneur. And now she's sharing all of her business secrets with us. Coming up, what it takes to be a successful entrepreneurista. You'll hear the unique way that you can fund your business when you're just starting out, how you can prepare for your capital raise, and finally, the power of concise and effective communication. This is the Entreprenista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Katie, Katie, I am so excited to finally sit down and have this conversation with you. I'm pretty sure this recording has been, oh, two to four years in the making. (laughs) There's an argument that it's been 12 years in the making. I think like we met 12, 13, 14 years ago. Something like that. That is true. That is so true. So yeah, we need to fill everyone in on the backstory, how we connected and met. So I think it was twelve years ago because it was right when Courtney and I were first starting Social Fly, which wasn't even called Social Fly back then. And we were we both started companies in two thousand eight. I think that's how we got connected. I'm pretty sure
0: wild. I first oh met at a yes. Shaky's event. Yes, in yes, Boston. that's right. Prior to yeah. Courtney. Oh my gosh! Me and Susie okay, were like so yeah, selling shoes at a girls' night out event
1: in Boston, maybe, or was it New no, New no, York no? Town? It was in yeah. in New York City. Okay, yes. Oh yeah. my gosh! So I totally forgot that you were there that night. So in my yeah. mind, that I had just met Susie that night, and that's how right. Courtney and I connected. But you were there too. That is so. Oh my yeah. gosh! Okay, it was always the two of us.
0: We were like twenty-one years old, you know, selling thousands of shoes <laughs> every night at these Jackie's events.
1: Well, someone had to do it. It was definitely you and Susie. I remember because I remember the um, initial
0: immediate connection because there actually wasn't that many, like two female co-founders starting a company. Like now it's cool to start a company, but this was 2008. It was not very common. It wasn't popular. And we all were leaving big jobs. Like Susie and I were leaving like big investment banks. And I think you guys I don't remember where you were, but I know Courtney just gave notice to Amex, I think. Is that right?
1: Yeah. 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 So it's yes, unbelievable. Time flies. Yeah. I can't, it's like hard to believe we're in 2023. And that was 15 years was ago, 15 years that, ago, that was 15 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So <laughs> yes, this entrepreneurista didn't exist then. So this episode okay. has been 15 years in the making. But yeah. <laughs> we've been trying to have you on the podcast for several years. But actually, it's yeah. almost better. You're sharing your story now because so much has evolved over the mm-hmm. past few years and what you're doing in in your career. And before we get into an angel investing and VC and how to raise capital. Let's just go back first and talk about how you got to where you are today. So take me back to the days. No one even knows what checkies is and that you were selling shoes. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> you
0: know, I was raised by really entrepreneurial parents and even like aunts, uncles, almost everybody I looked up to as a young child had a small business of some kind. So Manufacturing company, sign company, construction company, catering company, daycare company, you know, lifestyle businesses that had to be EBITDA profitable, uh, EBITDA positive in order to pay mortgages and send kids to camp and all those things. And so, you know, definitely a bit different than kind of the tech and venture world that I sit in now, but you know, the older I get, the more I realize how instrumental it was that I grew up around all of these risk takers. And, you know, I'm the oldest of four kids. My, mo- my mom had four kids in seven years. And when she was overwhelmed with us on a Saturday or a Sunday, she was like, go to work with your dad. <laughs> and so I spent a huge chunk of my childhood at my dad's office. And sometimes that meant picking up phone calls when nobody else was around. And so I think just that bug was there super early. Like I was always the young kid that was selling stuff like lemonade, water. Um, I actually paid my, partially paid my way through college with an eBay store where I was selling like secondhand Ugg boots and secondhand like juicy couture sets. And, you know, I think just, if you're entrepreneurial, you're entrepreneurial. It's just kind of, it's
1: there. It's literally in your blood. Like you just, you have it.
0: (laughs) I'm not even, maybe this is a hot take, but I'm not even sure it can be like, trained, like you definitely can improve, but I think there's a baseline level of craziness that you have to be like a W-2 salary and benefits like doesn't appeal to me (laughs) the way that it should. And so going, I went to NYU Stern in New York, very finance heavy school, you know, Susie, my former business partner, and we got connected. We were both really entrepreneurial in this like very finance heavy Environment. I was the president of the entrepreneurship club. I started the cafe on campus that was run by students for students, just kind of was always figuring out ways to kind of learn how to launch and scale businesses. And City Slips, which was my first real venture, I would say. You know, we, I'm 5'1, Susie was 5'1. We were always in high heels for work, for fun. And at the time, this was 2000. Seven two thousand eight, you know the options were pretty limited. You know, ugly flip flops, ugly sneakers, and so we we created these like patented foldable ballet flats that you could bring with you and change in and out of your heels and a little tote bag. Expanded and we launched it right after we graduated college, like from our college dorm room. And I was working at a big investment bank. and I was like, I'm probably going to come back with my tail between my legs in six months, but. We didn't need to, you know, we worked on that business for four or five years. We scaled it to a couple million in top line revenue and profitability and learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. We never fundraised. I didn't even know venture capital was an asset class right. like, at this time. And I, because I grew up with these lifestyle businesses, I just thought you had to become profitable. That's what you had to do. So we actually factored against our receivables to grow. We sold a lot. We sold direct. We also sold B2B. So we sold to like the Neiman Marcus and Macy's and Bloomingdale's and Bed Bath & Beyond's of the world. And, you know, we would get large purchase orders and we would get financing against those purchase orders, which is definitely something we can spend a little bit of time talking about because I don't think a lot of founders and entrepreneurs think of that as like a capital option for themselves.
1: So let's pause remote and I want to talk about some of these things and learning lessons before we get into sure. the next phase of what happened. And also similar to you and Susie, like myself and Courtney, we didn't know anything about raising capital. We didn't know that was a thing. the same as you, it's like, we're going to build an agency business. We're going to build a profitable business and bootstrap mm-hmm. the business. And that's what you do when you're building right. a business. So totally, totally. it all, you know, became this whole new thing to learn about all of this and realize like, okay, this could be an option or opportunity too, but raising venture capital and even raising from angels is not necessarily for every type of business. And we can get into more of, yeah. of that in just a it's bit. It's mostly but, not. At right, exactly. Not for 99% of Exactly, exactly. So yeah, let's, we'll talk about all of the different options and different opportunities for funding as well. But I want to talk about City Slips for a minute because you and Susie started this business in your dorm room. You know, you had grown up around a whole family of entrepreneurs. So you'd seen people do it. But here, you're creating this product-based business out of your dorm room, trying to figure out what to do. And you mentioned you learned a lot and had a lot of learning lessons and made a lot of mistakes. Like, Walk me through the process of how you guys figured out how to create this business, where to, how to get manufacturing, how to figure out where to get some capital from to start the business. And, and what did you learn? My dad owns a manufacturing business, not soft goods. It's like signs, awnings, industrial. So,
0: I had some experience working from him growing up about like ordering overseas um, and kind of importing products. There is a platform called Alibaba that we used for our first shipment. You know, we ordered a thousand pairs of shoes. Like, and at this point, it was still like we had we were using savings to kind of fund mm-hmm. this, and it was very much like an exercise. We we weren't we're still college students. So I think in a way I hear a lot, like you were so young. How did you do it? I actually think it was easier to do it as a college student. Cause you're, you're so young. You're so naive. You're so broke. It's just much easier to go from like being a broke college student to a broke startup founder. <laughs> you don't get used to a lot of like luxuries in between. I don't know if it's still the same, but you know, you had health insurance, to your parents until you were 26. So it's just like mm-hmm. a very unique moment in time, mm-hmm. I think to take a risk. And one of the first big mistakes we made was not knowing that we needed like an import export company to like be our broker. So I remember getting a phone call, I don't know, some point in the summer of like 2008, 2009, that like we had this huge shipment at JFK and they are like, who's your customs brokerage? And we're like, what's a customs brokerage? Like we just, and you just, you figure it, you make some phone yeah. calls, you like find one that you're connected to somehow. And we probably paid a couple hundred dollars, maybe even more for that mistake. But like, I'm a big believer of you just have to start doing something because yeah. And I, it's interesting because I actually largely feel like a perfectionist. But I think mm-hmm. when it comes to startups, I've seen now, this is the only world I've been in for 15 plus years. The value of starting and the momentum that can happen just can carry you so much further than that perfectionism. We felt very similar about like sharing and talking about the idea. The upside of telling someone smart about your idea is so much bigger than the downside that they have the time, money, passion, energy, it's like knock it off. And so, you know, we we got the products in, we started selling via a website and you know, that turned into us selling into very very small boutiques we would go find, you know, we basically had like a functional fashion product. So what we would do in the beginning when we were trying to just get sales in the door, we would find other brands and products that sold, you know, functional fashion items. There was one called Invisibelt at the time. There was like a hair towel one. There's a couple that were just like popular like these like boot tights. And we would go on their website and we would look at their retailer lists and then we would call those retailers and we're like, okay, they have a section in their store that sells stuff like this. So we like felt like we de-risked that outbound sales cycle a little bit. And you know, the bigger the small stores, you know, I think I'm trying to remember like one big moment we were selling to W Hotel had like a, a buyer in gifts and, you know, we had we were bootstrapped, so we didn't have a ton of extra capital. We did PR, we did sales, we did marketing, we did product development. But a big hack was a lot of publicists and PR people would walk the store would walk the boutiques of kind of these like fancier places, like the W Hotel, Bliss Spa was another one. We sold into Bliss Spa and that became a little bit of a PR engine for us. And so then we we're like, all right, instead of spending 20 grand a month on PR. Let's just go find some of these more like high-end boutiques where it's a merchandiser's or buyer's job to go see like what's the new stuff in these boutiques and write about it. So I think there's just some tactical like things that we learned. We learned a lot about sizing and SKU management. I think when we started... We had like I think we had two sizes, like a small, medium, and a medium large. And I actually I actually remember oh, this. because yeah, I remember the boxes I so guess over time we did you know, there's extra small, small, medium large, extra large, and you know, it's basically like one to two to three to three to one to two to four to four to two to one. You just you just kinda learn as as you go about like, oh, this is how sizes sell and we need to order inventory accordingly. I'll pause there, but I could talk for much longer about, you know, both things that we did well and things that we did not do well.
1: (laughs) What didn't go well? What ended up happening with the business?
0: Yeah, we sold the business and it's interesting, Susie in, let's see, when did we sell? I think we sold in 2013, 2014. And my partner Susie ended up actually working uh, to the company we sold to for, you you might even know better than I five, six, seven years. So I think you know, we were 25. So on one hand, I'm like, that was great <laughs> that we sold, that we had an exit, you know, that we, you know, had some money that we could pay ourselves after like doing the founder startup salary thing for a couple of years. And, but I think that one of the learnings, you know, we we grew the first four years then we kind of plateaued. And that be super capital efficient mindset that got us, to this like revenue and this profitability so quickly. I think both Susan and I didn't really know like, did we really want to go hire a ton of people and like raise a bunch of money? We were working with larger and larger retailers. Macy's, they just had so much more purchasing power and buying power than we did as like a couple million dollar a year brand. And so we had a showroom on 33rd between 5th and 6th. And We'd have like products in the front and we'd have offices in the back. And the buyer ended up being, you know, like a fourth generation manufacturing company across the hall that had like seen us for four years, knew that we had all of these luxury department store buyers. They had all these like mass retail buyers and the synergies just made a ton of sense. And we were attracted to this idea that we could be kind of one brand within their 20 where like they had so much more negotiating power with the bigger retailers year to year, quarter to quarter, season to season. So that's, that's what happens. I think a learning, you know, we really, we were so young and so naive, but we, we started with like product ideas. And I think if I was to go back and build a business like that again, I'd have the experience and knowledge to think about more of like what the, what does the company actually look like at scale? Like what is the umbrella of products? Should we name them all the same? Like we named one product differently than the other. And I think just, we had two websites at one point. Like we just, had no idea.
1: <laughs> you don't know what you don't know when you're first starting. And like you said, you literally just have to start. It's what we say every single day. We even we even put it on notebooks, just get started to remind everyone because you have to do that. And it's podcasts and conversations like this where we can hear from each other's experiences to learn. So, like someone who's listening right now, if you're just starting a business, you can hear all of these things ahead of time to learn from them. But when you're just starting... And back then, there weren't as many resources like there are now with communities and podcasts to hear these stories. But you did the thing. You started, you built a business, you learned a lot. And I think we kind of did this accidentally. But if you know,
0: for folks listening who are trying to
1: be more intentional
0: about the way that they're starting, it's so much work. And it is so much money. And it's so much stress. And so I think you really do want to figure out a pathway. And it depends if you want a lifestyle business for yourself or if you want to sell the thing at some point. But I think the quicker you can get to a million dollar run rate and profitability, the better. And just for options, options to just be a lifestyle business, options to sell, options to get financing. And so you know, as you're laying out that initial idea or plan, I think... I tell folks like, be really like ruthlessly honest with yourself about like, what do you think it will take to get to that million dollar run rate number approaching profitability and then bootstrap or fundraise accordingly.
1: So let's talk about some of the other financing options. And you mentioned with city slips, you didn't raise capital. Did you win grants during that time? Did you apply for any grants or win any contests? We did some business plan competitions, but... Honestly, I don't. I
0: don't think we won any of them. I don't think we got capital from anything outside of we did um a line of credit at some point. Yeah, like a hundred k line of credit, and from Capital One. I like remember going into Capital One with with Susie and like getting that and feeling like whoa, we're like big kids now. And factoring, we factored against Receivables. That was really our primary. That was our primary financing engine.
1: Can you explain what factoring is?
0: Yeah. So factoring is basically receivables financing, I think, in the simplest terms. So if you think about what our business was, which was physical goods manufacturing, you know, we were manufacturing overseas. You know, as we got bigger and had more power, we got better negotiating terms. But you know, at the beginning, it's like you have to pay your suppliers like upfront or 50% deposits, and then you know, balance on shipping. Shipping from Asia to the U.S. is like Four to six weeks. You kind of like four to six weeks for like your dollars are still being held up. You then get it to JFK, Newark, or you know California, and it sits in your warehouse for a couple more weeks. Then it ships to your retailer. Let's just say you know Neiman Marcus in this case or Bed Bath and Beyond. Then their payment terms are like net sixty to one hundred and twenty. It's like they get the product and they don't have to pay you for a really long time. So. In the worst of that situation, you're out of cash for like two, three quarters, which for a small business is is brutal. Um, so factoring, you know, there's there's banks that factor, there's just like small boutique firms that just exclusively factor. What they will enable you to do is let's just say you have a hundred thousand dollar purchase order from a retailer for X units of your product, you can borrow like ninety-five thousand of that upfront for an interest rate, which probably is higher now than it was when we were doing this. But basically, the factor is taking on the risk of that retailer shutting down, right? And then or like going bankrupt in the next two, three quarters. So, you know, they're underwriting, which, you know, is actually in this environment, like not a non-zero risk, like we're seeing big retailers go out of business, but basically, you know, they're underwriting their comfort level with just holding on to that liability and have the ability to do that for a couple quarters more than a small business might be able to.
1: So you're getting that cash up front. So let's say your purchase order was 100,000. You're getting 95,000 in cash now, paying some interest on it. I think at the time it was like 4 or 5% interest. Like it
0: felt, it felt like a no-brainer to us at the time. I'm not sure, like probably is a bit different now today, but just thinking out loud, given that, Usually, think there's a volume. Like, I'm trying to think when we first started factoring, and you know, I think a lot of people are just starting out. Their p- first purchase orders are probably not going to be in the hundreds of thousands. But I'm just like thinking out loud. You could almost also approach an angel investor in this way, like as opposed to, "Hey, put some money into my company." You know, have five or ten percent of my company. You know, something else I've guided some folks towards is like, "Hey." you know, wealthy people who like don't need the money now, you know, six to 10% interest for a pretty de-risked like investment is also worth considering. So I think this mostly pertains to product-based businesses versus like technology companies. But over the 15 years, I have seen that a couple of times. I have seen folks basically be like, I'll just factor it for you.
1: Like 10% interest sounds great to me on my money, you know? Would that be, like with an angel investor, would that be you're actually giving them equity and they're not getting the money back or they're getting the money back or either or?
0: They get uh, The way I've seen it, you could probably do some blended agreement with somebody, but the way I've seen it and what I'm talking about right now is it's not an equity investment. It's strictly a purchase order financing agreement. Um, and they're pretty simple. It's just an alternative I think not a lot of people think about. Like in this environment, I think there's a lot of people who'd be like, yeah, I won't, I would take 10 to 15% on a six month, you know, nine month investment. And if your product has, you know, 80, 90% margins, like that's something that is probably the delta is still workable for your numbers.
1: Super interesting. Okay, I'm glad you shared that. Okay, so take me back again. So you sell City Slips, Susie's there working at the company and you're starting to move on now to your next venture. What happens to Katie next? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So
0: I I was running a company, a small manufacturing business and all the time I was frustrated by just like ineffective, inefficient experiences. You know, we were getting $500,000 purchase orders on the fax machine. I was working with EDI warehousing systems that felt like they were built in the 1970s and like never modified. So I'd say as a founder myself, I started to become much more interested in software and technology that I thought would make my life better and easier. And also as a founder, all of these software companies start pitching you, like you know, CRMs, email marketing systems. So I think just naturally, I just got smarter on like software that helps owners and founders run businesses. Particularly, I think just, I was in retail and I was like, this is such a massive industry, like such a huge contributor to this country's GDP. And it feels like it's just so behind when it comes to technology, right? We were like now like starting to call push buttons for Ubers. And so I knew after we sold city slips that I wanted to move more into the technology side. I didn't know exactly what that meant or what that looked like, but I I think maybe Steph, yeah, I, the, the founder breakfast that I, I had been running this founder breakfast since starting pretty quickly after starting city slips, and so um, that's kind of where the next opportunity came from. You know, It's a, it's a group of about 20, 25 founders. We meet once a month for breakfast, and we'd have five guests come. And um, I got introduced to Greg Alvo, who's the founder and CEO of Order Groove, which was a retail technology company. And you could think of Order Groove as Amazon Subscribe and Save for everybody besides Amazon. So, a white label, you know, software platform that enabled every other retailer to have a subscription commerce offering. We sold to Walmart, we sold to CVS, we sold to L'Oreal. So that was really my first, I joined as the head of marketing. I think there was six or seven people when I joined, stayed through the series B. Um, and, you know, really that like close to zero revenue, it's like over 10 million ARR experience. And I was pretty hooked at that point. I was, you know, I think for me, I just, after the four or five years of running a business myself, like fully you get this, you've been doing it for longer. I loved being almost like an entrepreneur at a company.
1: We say uh, intraprenista here. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Okay. Me, there you go. So that was really, I think what kicked off the like, Hey, I'm, I'm now in the tech world, kind of running marketing at that startup. And that's my sort of angel investing too. After we sold city slips, had a little, lo- like a bit of discretionary income for the first time, post the founder journey. And you know, We were lucky when we were running the business. We won some of those 25 under 25, 30 under 30 awards. I got to know a lot of other young founders through those awards, also through the founder breakfast I was running. And frankly, you know, I just started doing very small angel investments. And people that I was like, you're smarter than me and you're building a much more scalable company than I was. And I can recognize that and I can help you Because of the lessons I've learned and also participate in the upside, that was just a very, very exciting possibility for me. And so, you know, the next, you know, I'm trying to think 2013 to 2017 basically was an operator at Venture Back Startups at Order Groove, Homejoy was the GM of New York. I then ran like a fractional CMO consultancy for a couple of years, you know, worked with companies like Aircall, which is now a a billion dollar plus company, always as a revenue and growth leader. And so just like so many at-bats of this like zero to 25 million ARR stage. And, you know, I think over those years, you know, through angel investing, through being an operator, through having this consultancy, you know, I worked with 12 startups over like the three years I was running the consultancy. And I think I just probably there's just tens of thousands of like micro data points in my head now about what excellence looks like, particularly when it pertains to like a founding team of a technology company. And I started to really trust my instincts. And some of those early angel investments started to do incredibly well. And um, I was basically uh, brought into a small fund in New York called Kairos in 2017. And I, I, it was just, I had made probably 20 angel investments at the time. And frankly, like once I realized venture was an asset class and that I could do it full time as a, for a living, I'm like, this is it. Like, this is the side of the table I want to be on. I hope to be able to do this for the rest of my life. Starting your own venture fund is like actually not that dissimilar from starting your own company. So I'm basically just a masochist. (laughs) But uh, I love it. Happy to share more on that too.
1: But yeah, that kind of brings us to now. Up next, you'll hear how Katie got started angel investing. So I want to go back just for a bit. And you mentioned, I think it was back in 2016 or 2017. Maybe it was even before that making your first angel investment. How did you learn about angel investing then? Because I know we talked about before, like you'd bootstrap, city slips. We didn't even know that this was even a thing. Like how did that opportunity come? And what gave you the like, okay, inside to be like, oh, I can put my money here. Like this makes sense. We can do this. So
0: the first investment I made was in a company called Bombas Socks, which is very, very Large now and doing quite well and has been profitable for years. And I met Dave because I had just sold a manufacturing company and he was starting a manufacturing company. And so a friend introduced us. And so I think just the general concept of angel investing, you know, we definitely like we talked to some rich people over the years. We were always kind of toying with this idea of like, do we bootstrap, do we raise? And so I think I knew conceptually that that was something that, you know, people did. But when I really got into these networks with other founders and realized that, especially the technology founders, like I was like, oh, everyone is raising from angels or VCs. Like it was definitely something that was on my radar at that point. And you know, I think the way, again, not very intentionally, but I'll I'll share it so others can be more intentional about it. If you're thinking about the idea of angel investing, you really have to think about it from a portfolio perspective, like venture is a power law business. You know, Most venture funds, let's just say a venture fund will invest in 30 companies in from one fund. Like one third of those companies are absolutely going to zero. One third of those companies, you may get your money back. And usually one third is where like all of the returns coming from, where you have outcomes from 10X to 30X to 300X. And so whenever I'm talking to someone who's thinking about angel investing, you know like even if the founder is saying hey it's a 25k minimum just say you can only do 5 or 10k and sell your sell your skill set sell whatever else you can to be like look the value of my network or my skill set is going to make up for me investing like below the minimum and do the math for yourself because you're really over 3 to 5 years you're going to want 20 plus companies in your little tiny mini angel portfolio I think another great alternative is if you have a skill set of some kind, if you've been a marketer, an operator, if you're great with Excel, I also have advised some friends to just not write any checks and do advisory work, you know, like where you can get 25K worth of equity value, but for your skill set of some kind. So I think there's a lot of ways to dip your toes in. What I really recommend against is if, you know, if you're, if someone's like, I have a $100,000 budget over the next couple of years to like do angel investing, to put 250K checks or 425K checks, like that's, that is super risky and probably not going to end well, especially if you're doing early stage. If you're doing later stage, it's different, but I've always been a pre-product, pre-revenue, like pre-seed investor. I think that's, That's where I trust my instincts the most. I I feel more like a talent scout than like a investor. But yes, it has to be a portfolio and the checks have to be small
1: (laughs) to start. No, I, I completely agree with you. So talk about this talent scout mentality of picking out these founders who just have, we'll say it, right? What is it in a founder that you've seen over the past 10, 15 years for these founders that are, building these companies that make it and are getting investors these these big returns? So I will say, I think we're in like almost a
0: transition point of even how I would answer that question. And so I think the last five to 10 years treated excellent salespeople and excellent fundraisers and excellent, just like the magnetic, the super magnetic people that you're just like, I want to hear what they're saying. I want to be near them. I want to work for them. That's where a lot of venture has gone over the past five ten years of just this like hey, this person's gonna be able to hire the best people, bring the best investors on board, sell to the best customers, keep those customers, keep those people and you know I think that is still largely a bias that the industry has right because it it is so hard and you do really need to be a magnet for for talent and capital. I think there's a bit of a change that's happening now, right? Where it's a little bit less of that just bombastic fundraiser type. We really, you know, I'll just speak to Divergent, but I've always felt this way. But I think now it feels even more relevant than ever. You know, we are looking for someone that has been thinking about the problem and the solution and why they're the best person to solve that problem for Years or decades instead of weeks or months. And I think what's happening, you know, in the, you know, we have like a 14 year bull market that's like almost never happened before. And so I think there was a period of time where anybody who was a little bit bored at their job was just, you know, I have a couple of friends that are inventor and I can get somebody to do, you know, design a nice deck. And it was just like a very cool thing for everybody to be doing. And I think now you're just coming back to, like, is this person going to run through walls to do this? And 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 to bring it back to venture, which again is not the right way to raise capital for everybody. I'm looking for somebody that can a hundred X my money. <laughs> so that usually means that, you know, for a $30 million fund, it's a little bit different. I'm running a $30 million fund. You know, we're really looking for somebody who can get that company to hundreds of millions of revenue and sell it for, you know, just under a billion or IPO for multiple billions. And so it's few and far between. And so I think, you know, we've really gravitated towards co-founding teams that have almost a dynamic similar to Lucy and I. Lucy's much more technical. I've been on the revenue and growth side and we've found that early stage startups they need to build and they need to sell. And usually it's very hard for that to be in one person. So I think that's something that like definitely is standing out now like really complimentary co-founding teams where like you trust and respect each other so much, but you have clear swim lanes and you know how to run quickly in your swim lane to get stuff done.
1: Absolutely. Such great feedback there. So what is your thesis now of Divergent Capital? What are the type of companies that you're looking to invest in?
0: Yeah. So I think the best way to describe us, you know, we're a generalist pre seed. I really do feel like our expertise is precede more than like a specific sector. That said, we definitely lean probably a bit more like tech and science heavy than kind of most generalists. So we gravitate towards like a PhD co-founder teams up with like a sales, you know, as like an industry expert can sell type co-founder. You know, we do, I'd say if, if I have to summarize some of the key areas that we're interested in that we're investing in, and you know, we're looking for founders that are solving problems and like industrials like supply chain, logistics, manufacturing, robotics. Like, what does the future of a warehouse look like? What does the future of you know international shipping and supply chains look like? We're investing quite a bit in healthcare and in biotech and tech bio. Uh, how do we like? Better understand our health insurance plans. Why is this so complicated? How do we figure out precision medicine for you know diseases that aren't big enough to get attention from pharma, but where there's this huge long tail? We are investing quite a bit in it's called this like science driven consumer brand. So you know, for example, we we invested in a a biotech company that is scaling human breast milk proteins to replace the basis of Baby formula right now, which is ninety percent cow's milk proteins. We've invested in like two chemists that started a skincare brand, like just kind of some type of science innovation attached to a consumer brand. We've been very attracted to that's just like a perfect example of Lucy and my skill set coming together. we am also thinking a lot about like climate and technology. You know, what is the future of the energy grid look like? How do we get parametric insurance to get mass adoption? So pretty broad, but I think. You know, we are usually investing you know $750,000 to $1 million into the first $2 million that a company ever raises. You know, 75% of the time, that's pre-product, pre-revenue. And I think a lot of investors say they'll go that early. We will, like we actually will. And I think we trust our instinct there because we've been operators from that like zero to, zero to 10, zero to 15, zero to 20 million ARR stage so many times over the course of our career that we think we know what that talent looks like even before that revenue is in the door.
1: I'm glad you shared that because that is so true. And I've seen it and personally experienced it and know, you know, just from so many of our founders in the Entrepreneurs League community that are raising, there are so many funds that do say, you know, we're pre-seed and then they're not, you know, they're scouting based, on saying they're pre-seed, but they're not, they're not putting their money where, they're, uh, where their branding and marketing for their fund is. So the fact that you are actually really investing pre-seed, what are you looking for? And how do you want founders to reach out to you? Like what catches your attention to get that first meeting?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is nothing new, but it's always great if you can get some type of warm connection, like go on LinkedIn, find someone you know, get an email forwarded. I always tell folks, if you have raised any money at all, you need to use the people on your cap table more so than anybody else that will give you an introduction. The people that have invested in you before or your customers have such a better signal than anybody else that would send an email. If you haven't raised yet, this isn't an option. But something I hear sometimes from founders, You know, even if I'm like, hey, this isn't a fit for me or Divergent. They're like, hey, well, can you introduce me to XYZ? And I'm like, I'm happy to, but the first question they're going to ask me is if I invested. And if I didn't, it doesn't mean it's a deal breaker for them, but you're, it's so hard. Like you're looking for all the positive signals that you can get, and you're trying to get rid of all the neutral and negative signals that you can get. So I think just generally, if you don't have this, like create your list of like the 10, 15, 20 people in your life that have worked with you, think you're amazing, like will tell anyone that, you know, they either are investing you or if they had the money, they would invest in you. Like you need to start with like that little circle of champions. I think for any, for any effort, like that always goes the longest. But you know, we, we have a website, we have an email, we get inbounds, we read them, we take meetings with, with them sometimes. I think just generally, short and sweet, I think a big one or two sentences, three bullets, put the ask in there. I think this also even transfers to the first meeting sometimes. I think in those early days when you don't necessarily have something up and running yet, there can almost be a tendency to use like an entire 30 minute intro meeting to talk about all the great things that you've done in the past, because you're like, well, the only thing here is me. So let me just like keep talking about that. But I think there's an art and science to that. You know, if you're talking for five, seven minutes as the opener of that 30 minute call, there's an argument that like at least half of that should be on what you are building and why. So I think just like, you know, not over index, like you need to say everything impressive about yourself as quickly as you possibly can. And then you need to move on to what you're building because like we are, we're investing in you, but we're also investing in what you're building.
1: Do you like to see decks ahead of time? And I was actually, I'm like all over Twitter, always reading all of these different threads. And I see, you know, I see things both from founders and from, you know, VCs, you know, some like to get decks ahead of time. Some founders don't like to send them ahead of time. Like what's your take on the? I definitely want
0: to see a deck if I can. Um, If you're a second, third time founder, like you probably don't need one people are going to make some calls and like you're going to raise your raise money but generally speaking i do like to see a deck it just i feel smarter coming in so i think it just makes for a more productive call you know usually i like to ask people like the origin story you no know, you're talking to vcs so you've kind of checked the box that you're going to be working on this thing for 5 to 10 years if you can why you know summarize that pretty quickly that's how i start most calls and then I do have questions usually from looking at the deck and then it becomes much more conversational. But, you know, I think I'm always working with, you know, both founders I've invested in and founders I haven't like eight to 10 pages. Like if you can't figure out how to concisely talk about, you can always have an appendix, you can always follow up, you ha- you can get it, you can have a data room, but I think just generally speaking, some of my best performing companies and, you know, I guess the the best founders that are attached to them, they're excellent communicators. Like they're consistent communicators. They're concise communicators. There's not a lot of like run on paragraph types of communications. It's like, here was the goal. We hit it. We missed it. Here's why, here's what we're going to do to fix it. And just like the rigor and the hygiene of doing that like month over month or quarter over quarter can really compound. And so, you know, I was actually just talking to one of our founders who's going out for the next raise and I was like, get it to six slides. And just like, can you even do it, right? Problem, solution, team, traction, why now? Like, it's really easy when you're so obsessed with something to wanna share like every single thing that's in your head. But it's just not, It's I don't think it's the most effective use of your time or the reader's time. Like less is more and then use the first conversation if you get it to figure out what they care the most about. Like they're gonna be worried about one thing the most, right? And if you if you say too much or you talk the whole time, like you're never gonna get that information about what is it that they're excited about and what is it that they're worried about and how do I like
1: hone in on that for the follow-up. Coming up, Katie's outlook on fundraising in the current market. Oh my gosh, I have so many more questions for you. We could talk for like two hours, but I have an idea. Maybe we'll have you come talk to our... We have a whole Raising Capital Power group in the entrepreneurially community. So these are founders that are raising right now that are going through essentially coaching with... Actually, you might even know her, Lauren Kane. She used to be at Golden Seeds and now she started her own practice helping... I'll connect you guys, helping women founders raise capital. So yeah, would love to have you come come chat with our group that's raising right now and share some of these tips too. I like to tell
0: people that are raising. You know, I think there's a lot of like doom and gloom. It's a bad time to raise. I guess it is. But like deals are still getting done, and you know I have to fundraise too. And I think something I just try to remember, I try to remind founders, excuse me, is it's really a numbers game and it's a sales it's a sales process. Like I really discourage founders and like randomly, haphazardly sending. Fundraising emails like get a Google Sheet, get four hundred names on it, try to figure out all your warm connections, try to get those people to email on the same day, try to get the follow-up to it's it's like almost a drip campaign. And like that is what's going to lead you to the chance of having, you know, in the best case scenario, multiple term sheets where you get to choose who you want. It really is a sales process and it's a numbers game. I mean, Lucy and I even every single time you know somebody would pass on Divergent we would like analyze it and we kind of just stopped at some point and we were just like, you know what? They don't believe in us yet. Or they don't believe in us yet. Or like, we just, they're looking for something and we were in it and it's just move on. Like I even tell people like send a follow-up email, maybe one more, always put something new and exciting in the follow-up email. Never say like just checking in say like figured out this thing about the product or like got a new customer or got a new commitment from another investor. And, and then just, it's not the thing. If they're excited, you're going to know. Like you, if you're fundraising, you're, I heard someone say, I thought it was so well said. You're not trying to convert the skeptics. You're looking for the believers. If, if you can almost tell right away, like if someone's just like not going to get there and just do not spend time trying to convince that person to get there. I think that rarely works. Just go find people that are excited.
1: Totally. Such great advice. And keep that list going because you can follow up with them, you know, on your next round to keep that, keep everyone there, but focus. it. It's like turn the good into great and the stuff that's below good, just keep them on the back burner. Don't spend your time. I even tell founders, I'm like, like, should we keep them on like
0: a quarterly update list? I'm like, why? <laughs> like, why do they deserve to get all of your information? They ghosted you. And so again, maybe a little bit of a hot take, like not every, what what everybody would say, but I I just generally feel like there's no use in kind of continuing to look for something or send emails for, to somebody that's just not that interested. It's like dating. Yeah,
1: totally. Actually, but you know what I just thought of with you saying that? You never know who that person could know, right? So like, let's say that investor, potential investor was still on your list. And now you have all these great updates that are happening and they might not be the right fit for you, but they may be like, oh, I actually know this person or this other investor who actually might be interested. That's definitely like the pushback, I think, to my my hot take there. I just like haven't seen it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Or... All right. So here... All right. So for our listeners right now, if you have ever gotten a no from an investor... And you kept them on your email list, on your investor update list, and they came back to you or they made an intro for you, please reach out to me and let me know. Actually, reach out to me and Katie and let us know because we want to hear if it's ever worked. <laughs> totally.
0: I think I think I would say just like use your best judgment, right? There's a difference between someone who just ghosted you and someone who like had a call, sent a respectful pass email seems to like be connected or a champion. I guess it's not like a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, I wouldn't put too much of your time or resources or like mental bandwidth into that cohort. Like focus more on the people who have gotten involved and back to you as your champions.
1: Totally. Well, Katie, thank you for all of these incredible tips all of your advice. You are just a wealth of knowledge and it's so incredible all you've accomplished over the years. And so excited to see now what's going to happen with all of these incredible companies that you're invested in. So thank you. Thank you for spending the Friday afternoon with me. So appreciate it. Of course. So good to see you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Last question for you. I almost forgot to ask you the most important question. What does being an entrepreneur mean to you, Katie?
0: I think when I think of entrepreneurs, I don't know, for some reason, I kind of go back to when Susie and I started CitySlips, it was like the markets crashed in 08 and all of a sudden startups were like cool again, or everyone was like talking about how getting laid off in their big corporate job was like creating all of these entrepreneurs and these entrepreneurs. So I think, I think of an, an entrepreneur is just a really scrappy, resourceful person that's
1: going after what they want. Absolutely. Katie, where can everyone find you and follow you? And for any founders that are raising that it could be a great fit for them, what's the best way for them to reach out to you?
0: Yes. Our website for the firm is, uh, the firm name is Divergent Capital and the website is divergenthq.com. So D-I-V-E-R-G-E-N-T-H-Q.com. On the website is the list of our portfolio companies. so You can see the types of investments we've made so far. And then there's also a way to email us
1: Perfect. And we'll link out to everything in the show notes below. So head over to the show notes right now and you can click right through over to Katie's website. Katie, thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at Entrepreneistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entrepreneista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to Entrepreneista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead.